Wow. Why don't you put your hands together as Pastor Chris comes this morning. Take a seat. Thanks. You guys can take a seat. Before you sit down. That wasn't planned, actually. Right. I want you to sit down very carefully on the edge of your seat. Because I don't want you to get comfortable. Who knows that our messages here are recorded and they're available on, on SoundCloud and through iTunes? Because you need to know that because you are not going to remember everything I'm going to say this morning. I'm going to fill you with so much information, you are going to need to hear this again. It is going to happen so fast, you are going to, your head is going to spin and not in a devilish sort of way. Um, <laughs> and so you need to get prepared. First thing we're going to do is we're, we're actually going to read 50 verses of the Bible. I think it might be slightly more than that. But this, we're getting to the really nitty-gritty part of Mark. And uh, this, this, these verses only cover one 12-hour period. A lot is going on here, so pin your ears back. I'm going to invite Carmen to come up to start us off. I'm going to get three people to do this. We're going to split it into shifts. So, so you're, still on, you're not on the edge of your seats. Okay, I promise not to interrupt. Okay, all right. Much. So Mark chapter 14 and verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? So Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem with these instructions. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. So the two disciples went into the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. In the evening, Jesus arrived with the twelve. As they were at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me here will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one? He replied, it is one of you twelve who is eating from this bowl with me. For the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible will it be for the one who betrays him? It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it in the new kingdom of God. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. On the way, Jesus told them, all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter said to him, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. 
Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times that you even know me. No, Peter declared emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the others vowed the same. Thank you, Elise. Jesus prays in Gethsemane. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane and Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James and John with him and he became deeply troubled. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want you, your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned and found the disciples asleep. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me for even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them again and prayed the same prayers before. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open and they didn't know what to say. When he returned to them the third time, he said, go ahead and sleep, have your rest. But no, the time has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinner. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Jesus is betrayed and arrested. And immediately, even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests the teachers of religious law and the elders. The traitor Judas had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. Then you can take him away under guard. As soon as they arrived, Judas walked up to Jesus. Rabbi, he exclaimed and gave him the kiss. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Jesus asked them, Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there among you teaching every day, but these things are happening to fulfill what the scriptures are saying about me. Then all his disciples deserted him and ran away. One young man following behind was clothed only in a long linen shirt. When the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. They took Jesus to the high priest's home, where the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and went right into the high priest's courtyard. There he sat with the guards, warming himself by the fire. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they couldn't find any. Many false witnesses spoke against him, but they contradicted each other. Finally, some men stood up and gave this false testimony. We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another made without human hands. But even they didn't get their story straight. Then the high priest stood up before the others and asked Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus was silent and made no reply. Then the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power 
at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Why do we need other witnesses? You've all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they all cried. He deserves to die. And then some of them began to spit at him and they blindfolded him and beat him with their fists. Prophesy to us, they jeered. And the guards slapped him as they took him away. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. One of the servant girls who'd worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, You are one of those with Jesus of, with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it. Don't know what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. Just then a rooster crowed. When the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling the others, This man is definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. And a little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, You must be one of them because you're a Galilean. Peter swore, A curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he broke down and wept. Just wiggle your backsides for a bit. You got a bit, still got feeling there? I know that was a, a fairly long piece of scripture, but you can see that suddenly after sitting down at the Passover meal, things have started to move really rapidly. This is a pivotal time in Jesus' ministry. Things are coming to a head. There are so many lessons, revelations, and events that we've read about here that are pivotal in understanding the coming crucifixion and the resurrection that we could spend weeks talking about them. I'd love to, but I've got 20 minutes. And so there's a theme that runs all the way through this that Mark is using to actually inspire action in both his target audience. Who knows what Mark's target audience? Why did Mark write the gospel? Do we know? He was writing to the Romans. He was actually writing to a Gentile audience, trying to get across to them who Jesus was. And so he's trying to inspire action from a, an audience who doesn't have a Jewish heritage. And he's also talking to his future audience, which is us. So the theme that he's, he's talking about is the power of redemption in the face of human failure. Because Mark uses the failure of two people to illustrate this theme. There's actually a third person in there, but he's quite hard to find. I might reference him a bit later. But Jesus is most obviously betrayed by two people. The first one is Judas. He's an obvious one. The second one is Peter. He betrays or he denies that he even knows Jesus Christ. And these two betrayals happen in a, a set of circumstances that could have been written by Robert Ludlum. Who's Robert Ludlum? He wrote... The Born series, The Born Identity, all, all those books. So he, he writes spy thrillers. And if you, you start off in this, this, this section of Mark reads like a spy thriller. I mean, verse 13, Jesus sent two of his disciples into Jerusalem with these instructions. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Secret, secret handshakes. Follow him. At the house he enters, give the owner the secret password. Where is the guest room that, where I or the teacher can eat Passover with my disciples? Nod, nod, wink, wink. He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. 
That is where you should prepare our meal. See, there was a, a secret. Men did not carry jars. Men carried wineskins, but only women carried jars of water. So a man carrying a jar on his shoulder, suspicious. The owner of the house knows Jesus. He didn't have to say who. He said, tell them that the teacher needs the, the room. So it, this is all set up and prearranged. But only the, only the servant knows where it is. Notice they meet the servant. He takes them to the house. The owner of the house shows them the room. The room is already set up. There is something going on here. So it's into this mysterious and private setting that Jesus and his disciples arrive to celebrate the Passover. Now, if you've read some of the other, there are a lot of things Mark doesn't cover. Mark's favourite word, and reading some of the commentaries, it's almost a running joke about people who read Mark. He uses the term erethus kai, which is probably very badly pronounced Greek, for immediately. Every time he starts a sentence, it's immediately. So things happen in Mark's mind immediately. So immediately, he, he goes to the meat of the of the matter regarding the betrayal. He ignores the, washing, the whole washing of the feet thing that we hear about in John. Uh, he ignores the lesson in humility that, that's in that gospel as well. Read them, I encourage you. But he goes straight to the uncomfortable bit. Jesus gets up and everybody's enjoying a meal. Suddenly he just lets a, a bombshell drop. One of you guys is going to betray me. Verse 18 just says, As at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me here will betray me. Thinking it was a joke, the disciples had a good laugh. No, it says, greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one? Now, the way they actually asked it in the Greek was apparently, I'm not the one, am I? So they all asked with the expectation of a negative answer. So they, they, they didn't think it was them. And he said, it's one of you 12 who's eating from this bowl with me. And so there'd have been bowls on the table and they would have dipped their bread in it. So only the people closest to Jesus would have been dipping from the bowl that he was dipping in. So that narrowed it down a bit. But he didn't say who it was. And then he goes on to say, the Son of Man must die as the Scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he'd never been born. Now you're, you're just having dinner. And suddenly, ooh. Leaves a nasty taste in your mouth. So they're all stunned, except Judas, of course. And although the statement that it's one of the 12 eating from my bowl narrows it down a bit, Jesus doesn't reveal the traitor's name. In one of the other Gospels, it talks about how he's speaking to Judas, but none of the others hear him. And so it's interesting what Jesus does. Jesus has washed Judas's feet. It's an act of servanthood. Jesus has broken bread with Judas, which is a sign of honor. Jesus has not revealed to the others that Judas is about to betray him, which is a sign of loyalty. And Jesus has also revealed in what he's saying to Judas that he knows exactly what Judas is doing while he's doing these things to serve Judas, which is a sign of trust. So, even though Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him, he has treated Judas with the utmost honor and respect and let him know. Because who knows? God knows what we're thinking. He's let him know that, I know that you're about to do something really terrible, but I still love you and I'm still going to give you every chance possible to repent and change your mind. Some people defend Judas and say, well, hang on, 
He had to, he had to betray Jesus. It's, it's in the scriptures. Somebody had to betray him. Jesus was just a puppet of God's to betray Jesus. Other people say, well, he felt he had to do that because he, he believed in a physical revolution that was coming. And Jesus talks about being a revolutionary in the garden. And so he was trying to get Jesus to actually just do what he was supposed to do. But none of those are actually true. He wasn't a martyr. He wasn't a robot. He wasn't a, a puppet. He's a, he was a responsible human being who made his own decisions, but in doing so, fulfilled the word of God. He's not a hero or a helpless victim. He was lost for the same reason millions are lost today. He refused to repent of his sins and believe on Jesus Christ. That verse in verse 21, for the Son of Man must die as the Scriptures declared, but how terrible will it be for the one who betrays him? It says it would be far better for that man if he'd never been born. That sounds outrageous. But Jesus isn't marking out special punishment for Judas. He's reflecting on the fate of everybody who rejects the gospel message. If you've never been born again one day, you're going to wish you'd never been born at all. The second betrayal is, of course, Peter. Peter denies Jesus, and it actually comes, and this is really interesting, because it comes from a place of disobedience. He only denies Jesus because initially he ignores Jesus. He disobeys Jesus. He didn't understand who Jesus was, just like Judas. He didn't understand who he was, why he was here. And their un lack of understanding starts on the way to the garden. Mark 14, 27 says, On the way, Jesus told them, All of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, and he quotes Zechariah 13, chapter, verse 7 here, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised from the dead, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter said to him, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the cock rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. No, Peter says emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the others, yeah, we're with Peter. Yeah, yeah, we, we vote the same. Yeah, we're not, we're not leaving. Let me ask you something. What is the difference between Jesus prophesying something over you and Jesus giving you an instruction? None whatsoever. What do we learn about prophecy in the book of Acts? We prophesy in part, we know in part. Jesus knows completely. If he says, I will be killed... You will be scattered, and I will meet you again in three days. What is he doing? He's giving you an instruction. What he was saying to the disciples here is, I'm going to be killed. You need to go. You need to flee. Get out of town. And I'm going to meet you in three days when I've, been risen, when I've risen from the dead. That, that's a set of instructions. Because Jesus doesn't prophesy. Jesus doesn't hint. Jesus doesn't say, this might happen. He's giving them instructions. The disciples, of course, think they're better than Jesus. No, they don't think they're better than Jesus. They think they're better than Jesus says they are. They're sort of thinking, well, that's insulting. He's saying we're cowards. And so, being males, they puff their chests up. No, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I'm not like that. I'm not that sort of person. What they're really saying is, I don't believe you're God. I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. And so, can you imagine what would happen if they'd taken Jesus at his word? He's going to be killed? Oh, that part's right. We're going. Let's go to Galilee and wait for three days for Jesus.
They'd have waited for three days. Guess what? Jesus would have met them and said, hey, <laughs> great stuff. It all worked according to plan. All this stuff in the middle wouldn't have happened. Peter would never have denied Jesus because he would have obeyed Jesus. So, all of this comes about because people just don't understand completely yet who Jesus is. And so Mark continues his narrative. He's got a couple more lessons in here for us about our heart attitudes, about how looking holy doesn't cut it. The first example is when he goes into the garden to pray. Verse 33 says, He took Peter, James and John with him and separated from the other disciples. And he became deeply troubled and distressed and told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here, keep watch with me. And he went on a little further and fell to the ground and started praying. Now, a little further isn't into the next suburb. It isn't even across the road. It's probably you know, a couple of meters away. And so they're all standing watch. They can hear Jesus praying. If they'd thought to stay awake and listen, they would have heard him talking to God. They would have gained further re revelation like, he really is going to die. He's re preparing himself for death. Perhaps we should support him and pray with him. Imagine if they'd added their prayers to him. But no, they fell asleep. They missed what he was saying. They missed an opportunity to pray. And he came and woke them up. Can't you even stay awake? Yep, yep, we're good, we're good. They did it again. They missed, A, an opportunity to get a revelation from God. And B, they missed an opportunity to have their prayers answered. Imagine if they'd prayed with him. Jesus, again, Peter may not have ever denied Jesus. They would have come to a revelation of what God wanted them to do and not got themselves into trouble. But the worst thing is the other disciples are some distance away and can't see that. They're sitting there thinking Peter, James and John are holier than the rest of us because they're with Jesus praying. Peter, James and John were there with Jesus sleeping. To all other people it appeared that they were doing the right thing, but they weren't being holy at all. They were being sleepy. They missed what could have been a great opportunity to have prayed with Jesus and to have changed the future. The second example is Judas. Judas in verse 44, had given them a prearranged signal. You'll know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. Then you can take him away under guard. And so as soon as they arrived, Jesus walked up to Jesus. Rabbi, he explained, and gave him the kiss. Who knows that a kiss on the cheek is a fairly intimate thing. You just don't go off and kiss random strangers on the cheek. And it's a sign of respect in those times that you, you honoured and respected the person that you were, you were giving the kiss to. But he used it for something that was far from intimate, far from respectful. And we've got to be careful we don't do the same thing. We appear to be intimate with God. We do all the things that pretend, you know, we come to church. We, we memorize scriptures. We do things. But sometimes, just because we look like we're doing the wrong thing, our hearts aren't in the right place. We have to be careful not to just give the appearance of doing the right thing or the appearance of intimacy with God and actually have a real an honest relationship with Jesus. After all, he does know what you're thinking. <laughs> Appearing to do the right thing is not enough. So there's two more lessons that he's, th he's thrown in free of charge in there about our heart attitude towards God. And so now Jesus is taken away. He's accused by false witnesses. He's mocked and abused. And Peter is in the courtyard below trying to escape detection. Before the rooster crowed twice, as Jesus stated, Peter denied that he knew Jesus three times. However, you notice it doesn't say it was the rooster crowing that convicted Peter. 
It was the remembering of Christ's words. The word of God is always the thing that penetrates people's hearts and brings about repentance. Peter remembered what Jesus had said and realized what he himself had done. And so with his heart broken, he went out quickly and wept bitterly. You can imagine how he felt at that time. And yet, if he'd heeded Jesus' warnings, he'd avoided walking into temptation at all. He's a warning to us all. For after all, if he walked out on Jesus after having walked with Jesus, what would we do in similar circumstances? The people of Rome who were reading this gospel learnt that very quickly because they were soon persecuted themselves and they had to stand strong. But we've got to be careful about judging Peter because he's a bit like us. We need to examine our own lives. How many times have we denied God? How many times have we lost opportunities to share the gospel with others? Do we, like Peter, talk when we should listen? Got very quiet. Do we argue when we should obey? Do we sleep when we should pray? Do we fight when we submit? If we're honest, like Nathan, we've all done those things. We've all sinned. We can't stand here in judgment of Peter for failing because we've all done the same things. Peter at least was sorry for his sins and wept over them and God forgave him. After his resurrection, we know that Jesus had a bit of a private meeting on the road to Emmaus. We know that Peter was one of those. And he also helped him make a public confession on the beach when he met his disciples in Galilee. When he asked that question, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter finally was redeemed. Now the question in all of this was, was Judas remorseful? I mean, here we've got Peter. He, he's remorseful. He's turned to God. He's repented. He's okay. We know that he went on, got people saved, had a, you know, was a, a strong disciple of Jesus. But was Judas even sorry for what he did? If we read in Matthew's Gospel, verse, chapter 27, verse 3, it says, When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and elders. I've sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. What do you care, they retorted. That's your problem. And Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple and went out and hanged himself. We know that Jesus had given Judas every possible chance to have a change of heart during the Passover meal. He had virtually told Judas that he knew what he was about to do, but he was prepared to forgive him anyway. Surely you'd think this was a big hint that even after the event, if Judas had gone to Jesus and said, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me for betraying you, Jesus would have said, yes. But he didn't. He asked forgiveness of the wrong people. He asked the chief priests to forgive him. He asked worldly forgiveness. But he forgot to ask for eternal forgiveness. It's interesting, in contrast with Judas, Peter's remorse opened the way for true repentance and a reaffirmation of his loyalty to Jesus as the written Lord. Peter had a faith in Jesus that could be renewed. Judas did not. There's a little footnote to this story because there's a third person who is deeply impacted by what happened to Jesus in that night. 
He's only mentioned once. And it's only mentioned in Mark's gospel. Verses 51 and 52 says, One young man following behind was clothed only in a long linen shirt. And when the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. What, the, what is that? You sort of think, well, why, why on earth is that even in there? Who gives us stuff about this kid who's running away naked? But it turns out there's evidence that this naked boy has a huge influence on what we're learning right now. Because you see, remember I told you about the secret rendezvous in the beginning. There is fairly strong evidence from Bible scholars that the owners of the house that they had the Passover meal in were the parents of a certain John Mark, who was a young boy at the time. He shortened his name to Mark at some point and happened to write a gospel. But can you imagine, Judas has gone off and he's told the, the priests about all of this and they've come to collect Jesus. Where are they going? Judas left early. He doesn't know they've gone to the Mount of Olives. So where does he turn up? He turns up where they had the Passover meal and demands entry and wakes up this young lad who's sleeping in his nightshirt who hearing the commotion goes down, says, listens and then races off to the garden to warn Jesus that Judas is coming. But he gets there too late. And he's hanging around the edges wondering what's going on. And as they go to grab the disciples, he gets caught up in the, the melee and his shirt's grabbed, his nightshirt, which he slips out of and runs away naked. The reason it's only in Mark's gospel is it's Mark. He was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. We know that Mark wasn't one of the disciples and we know that he didn't follow Jesus around um, Galilee as part of his ministry. Now, and this, a lot of this is supposition. There is, the, the, the fact that it was Mark's parents' house is fairly, there's fairly strong evidence. The fact that it was Mark himself, apart from this reference here, isn't referred to anywhere else. But can you imagine how that would have impacted him? The fact that he wrote the gospel, the fact that he was involved I mean, this, this is the guy that, Mark refu that Paul refused to take on a missionary journey because he thought he was a flake. And later, you find in the book of Acts, he had to repent of that and say, well, actually, perhaps John Mark wasn't such a bad fellow. He's done some really good stuff. This is a guy who's had this incredible history of bringing us the gospel message because of something he experienced as a young lad when he saw Jesus betrayed. We don't know what our connections with God can come from they can do things which can have unimaginable consequences in the future anyway that was just an aside there I thought you might be interested in that little tidbit so just to summarize we've got two betrayers two people who are the lowest of the low two people that we could spit at throw stones at and say were rubbish because they, they, they had so many things in common both of them did not understand who Jesus was. Both did not understand Jesus' purpose. Both ignored opportunities to obey Jesus. Hello? No, just me. Both followed their own wisdom. Who's clever here? Any clever people? Come on, you're allowed to be clever. You can admit it. We, a lot of clever people here. But we've got to make sure that we don't follow our own wisdom over following God. Both thought their actions were righteous. They didn't do them because you know, they liked to do the wrong thing. 
They actually did them because they would, thought they were doing the right thing. Both of them were made aware of the error of their action. And funnily enough, both of them were sorry for what they'd done. The major difference, the thing that we need to take home with us this week, the thing that we need to look at our lives in regard to, is that one of them turned to Jesus for redemption and the other one turned away from Jesus in, rede in rejection. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Because I know there's, the, there's a great communion story in there, the breaking of the bread. That was great what we heard from Mason. But if you look at the, the path that's taken in all of that, it's really the whole concept behind why Jesus came. Jesus came and he came to a, a people of, that he'd created, a people of free will. And he came and set a choice in front of us. And the, the, the really encouraging thing about this choice is, he says, if you make the right choice, it doesn't matter what sort of crappy person you think you are. It doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made, how many wrong decisions, how misunderstood you are, how, how much you misunderstand the kingdom of God, how much you've rubbished Jesus in the past, how much you've done anything. The choice for redemption or rejection is yours alone to make and because you're created with free will, only you can make it. And that's it. You don't have to be a really clever person. You don't even have to have been good all your life. You don't even have to understand Jesus. You just have to make a choice of which way you're going to turn. And Mark puts it so clearly and so cleverly. We can see that your actions of everything else you do in life don't necessarily affect your eternal life. Now, your actions are an offshoot of what comes out of your heart. We know that. But in the end, it's the one decision you make, whether you turn towards Jesus and ask for his redemption, or whether you turn away from Jesus, reject what he has to say, and take on board what the world gives you. This is an incredibly powerful message. And, and as I say, the, the, even the, the, the story Mark tells about himself speaks of how even a casual connection with God can take you places. God works in our lives in, in different ways. I mean, often we can look back in our lives and we can see where Jesus has worked in our life before we even acknowledged his existence. But he is working. Can I get George up here just quickly? Can I get us all to, all to stand up? You've been sitting on the edge of your seat for so long. Now, if you were taking notes there and, and uh, gave up halfway through because I was going a bit fast, I apologise. Um, I will make them available if you want them. Um, if you want to hear it all again on SoundCloud, it'll be up sometime this week, assuming that technically things have gone all right. Got a thumbs up from the back there. 
But I want us to think about this coming week. When you go home today, are you going to sit at the table and say, well, that wasn't a bad message. That was nice. 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 Most horrible word in the English language. That was nice. Because if you say nice, what it means is, yeah, it tickled my ears, but didn't get any further. It was okay. I, I didn't mind the 30 minutes you took out of my life. It was okay. Sat there, didn't get a sore bum sitting on the edge of my seat. It was nice. Nice is nothing. Nice is noxious. And I, and I, I don't care whether it's hearing my message or whether I, I even could just encourage you to go to that section of Mark and read it again. Read what it says afresh for you. But we need to have a life that's typified by a man like Peter. Not that we should aspire to the mistakes that he made. We just need to admit that we've made them. I mean, really, we're like him. We stuff up. We're not wise. He's a bit impetuous. Who's ever found that impetuosity always gets you into trouble? But sometimes it's so much fun that who cares? But we, we have a choice this week. In whatever we do, you need to be thinking, am I turning towards God when I'm doing this or am I turning away from God? Am I rejecting what God's telling me or am I turning towards him and even if it's not the right thing, saying, God, forgive me. I repent. I live under your grace. I know I'm not perfect. But I'm accepting your lordship in my life. I just want to ask, if you're here and you've never turned one way or the other, you might have actually turned and rejected Jesus. But if you know in your heart that you are not living a life with Jesus at its center, you are not somebody who would call yourself a Christ follower or a Christian, Jesus presents every single one of us with that choice. Now, it's lucky for us he doesn't only do it once. Throughout our life, we will find times when we are challenged to either turn towards God or turn away from God. Now, this morning, if that's you, if you're standing there thinking, well, I don't have a relationship with God. Jesus says right now, well, you have a choice. You can turn towards me. Accept my redemption and we can have a start a relationship right now. Or you can turn away. And not be born again. I won't say what it said about wishing you'd never been born. But God is always open. His arms, as Nathan said earlier, the example of a, a father with his arms open. His arms are always open, ready to receive us. And so all, all I'm going to ask, if you, if you want to make that decision this morning to say, okay, I'm going to turn towards Jesus, I'm going to ask for his redemptive power in my life. And you've never done that before, or you know that, although you have done it before, you've turned away again. You've done the rejection turn. I want to offer you an opportunity this morning just to say a quick prayer with me to acknowledge publicly that you've made that turn.
towards Jesus. Can I ask you all to close your eyes? So while we're standing here and nobody's looking around, if that's you, can I ask you just to raise your hand so that only I can see it? And I'd love to pray with you that prayer to ask Jesus into your heart to make that turn towards redemption, towards a new life with him. Is there anyone at all? Okay, I'm now going to ask a second group of people. I know it's getting late. We've run a bit over time this morning, but I sort of feel that God doesn't mind. I haven't actually checked, but I'm pretty sure that his schedule doesn't always run according to ours. But I think it's important that we do more than pay lip service to what we hear out of God's Word. And you probably heard me say before that especially when it comes to prayer, I like to pray standing up because I believe that if we stand up on the outside, something of us stands up on the inside. That if, if we're going into warfare, you know, soldiers sort of don't tend to ride too much into battle these days. You, you run or you crawl or you do something. It's, it's physical because you wake up the warrior inside of you. And when it comes to spiritual things, it's the same. So I've got you standing. I could ask for a grunt, but I, I won't. But if, if you want to make a change this week, if you, if you don't want what you heard this morning just to be nice, it was a nice message. I like Mark, he writes a nice gospel. If you want it to be more than that, if you want to actually, when you pray on Monday morning, when you read your Bible on Monday morning, if you want to actually Take that step of saying, okay, I want this to be different. I want this to change my life today. I want what I read in the scripture to affect me as I go to work, as I go to school, as I do my job or whatever you're doing. Then we've actually got to focus on our relationship with God. And we actually have to, and you don't have to do it physically, but we, we need to make that turn. We need to start believing in God's redemptive power. And guess, guess who gives us the strength to do that? It's not, it doesn't come from inside me. It's not because I go to the gym and exercise. It's, it's not us, it's God. It's his Holy Spirit. And we need to invite his Holy Spirit to prompt us with that. So what I'm going to ask you to do, if you, if you actually really want God to make a difference this week, if you're going to take that step of redemption, because who knows, Peter was a, a follower of Christ. He was one of his most elevated followers and yet he was brought down by his own cleverness but Jesus elevated him again when he repented so it doesn't matter how you feel about yourself today whether you think you're worthy of it whether you think God loves you or he doesn't love you it's not your thinking that counts it's God's action so if you want to see a change in your life this week, I encourage you, take a step out of your seat onto this altar right now. Just move out of your seat. If you're going to pray on Monday morning and you're going to, you, you're going to expect a difference, if you're going to read your Bible and you're going to expect revelation, because it's not because you sit there and you think, well, I'm cleverer this morning, so I'm going to get more out of this. It's actually saying to yourself, I 
am going to allow God's Spirit to work inside of me. I'm going to do something different. I want you to raise your hands to heaven. And pray after me. Almighty God, I open my heart for your Holy Spirit to change me. From this moment on, I'm going to have an attitude of an open heart and an open mind to the Word and the Spirit of my God. Today, tomorrow, and the rest of my future will be different because my heart attitude is now in line with Almighty God's. I am a child of God. This world has no influence on me. In Jesus' name, amen.